0: Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Robert Jones. Welcome to the first episode of the Catch Curve podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And with a special guest today, uh, Shannon Tompkins, the outdoor writer for the Houston Chronicle. Good morning. Just as a reminder, the Catch Curve is a podcast that's going to cover the intersection of fisheries and coastal communities, coastal economies, um, and general use of outdoor resources and how that impacts coastal communities. And we have an expert with us today to dig into that issue on our inaugural podcast. Um, Shannon, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the Houston Chronicle. Well, I, uh, uh, I cover
1: outdoor recreation and natural resource issues for the Chronicle. I have for the past uh, 29 years and uh, have been a journalist since, uh, well, since the late 70s. And, and uh, almost all of it focused on coastal coastal texas coastal louisiana coastal issues
0: a lot of it so with over 40 years of experience in outdoor journalism how did did you arrive at this career in the first place
1: uh dumb luck (laughs) 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 i i just uh uh you know i went to college uh thinking I wanted to be into uh, wildlife and fishery science and ended up in journalism and then ended up with a, a graduate degree in public policy also so it would just seemed like almost a natural fit to end up where I ended up.
0: Well I'm a regular reader of your column and a big fan um, and I'd like to hear a little bit about the audience that you're writing to uh, in your regular columns and I'm sure you know a little bit about the demographics from the paper, but also because you probably hear back from a lot of those people and and what what you're trying to achieve in, in writing those columns.
1: Well, actually, you know, my focus is on outdoor recreation, uh, but I do a whole lot of natural resource stuff too. So my main audience, the core audience, is, is basically anglers, boaters, campers, hunters, fishermen, but I really try to focus as, as widely as I can to interest as, as wide an audience as you can. And, you know, a newspaper is uh, supposed to be for general interest. And uh, the more, the wider you can cast the net, the better. The more people who find some value in what you do is, 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 uh, is a positive thing.
0: I'm interested, before we, we start talking about the, the subject of... The natural resource itself and how you've seen it change. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you've seen journalism and specifically outdoor journalism change over the course of your career.
1: <laughs> I guess it was a great story when I first got into this business I was around a campfire with a bunch of guys and a person who was a lobbyist with for natural resources in the Texas legislature was one of the guys there and uh, I had just started really covering outdoors for newspapers and uh he said you'll you'll never make it in this business you went to journalism school <laughs> which kind of was a backhanded slap at how my job used to be it was basically just a in a lot of cases just a good old boy i went fishing today and here's what we caught deal instead of covering issues or 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 getting into a little bit deeper uh, it, it's changed a lot and it's it uh probably reached its zenith probably over the past twenty years and now newspapers are uh, like a lot of you know print industries it's kind of on the decline we've reached the interesting thing is we reach more people now than we ever did through our uh you know through our online sites uh it's just uh it's just I guess they can't make any money <laughs> off of online. So, uh, uh, you know, w- staffs are smaller. We have less opportunity to cover things as in-depth as we might have in the past. But, uh, but yeah, it's changed. It changed over the past 20 years, 25, 30 years from covering just, uh, just telling stories to covering issues uh, because I think everybody saw that they're, you know, if you're you're a coastal fisherman what happens to that coast determines if if there are any fish for you to catch and and what fish are there for you to catch so
0: so i learned recently um sad fact that you are the last full-time outdoor reporter in texas um it kind of speaks to the change you just just referenced um how does that feel and 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 does that put more responsibility on you and your storytelling?
1: I don't know if it puts more responsibility. It makes it it's kind of sobering. Uh, I've always thought of this job as a responsibility. It's mm-hmm. it's it's a job and and uh, you're serving your readers. You're serving your audience. Uh, so I've always looked at it as a responsibility. I don't though I don't feel any more responsible now than I did my whole career I mean I've, I've always tried to do as, the best job I could and you know there are a lot of external factors that that play into that but uh, uh, and yeah it's been really it's been really sobering to watch this my profession shrink so dramatically over the past it's really been the past 10 years uh So there are not that many voices out there anymore. Uh, There are a lot of voices, but there are not as as many voices in positions kind of like I've had.
0: So, one of the things that occurs to me is, you know, we live in a day and age where um, the topic du jour can be pretty shallow, and uh, you know, about uh, the most recent social activity of a celebrity or you know, things that may not directly impact people's lives, and the area that you're covering uh, is not a short burst. It's very much a long-term view about how our our natural environment is changing um, and how that impacts people's ability to recreate or harvest natural resource for a living. Um, how have you approached that in your storytelling and in, in, in your narrative for your audience to give them the long-term view of what you've seen over your career but still make it relevant to to something that they would have seen in their daily life well
1: that's a good question and that's 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 the trick of the job is to make make take issues that are current and and try to weave a thread showing where they came from and what's happening now and where they're going uh it's you know it's it's a constant challenge to uh, to come up with uh with topics that you think will be of interest to to readers and uh that affect them directly and the ones that affect them directly are usually the most are obviously the ones that they care the most about Uh, so you try to pick you try to try to cover as much as you can uh Things that impact people directly.
0: So, I think everybody can imagine this, but the, you know, you cover the Houston, or you're with the Houston Chronicle covering the Houston metro area, which is, you know, the third largest city and metro area in the country. Uh, the The size of your audience is enormous. Um, tell me a little bit about when you're thinking about that readership and that number of people in the limited real estate you have to tell a story um tell me about some of the stories that you haven't gotten to write that you wished you had
1: (sighs) how many hours do you have (laughs) uh there are you know there are i uh you know there just one one issue uh and we talked a little earlier just visiting about, about oysters. There are so many facets of that issue that I wish I had the time and the resources to to develop a little bit better. Uh, I've been lucky. The Chronicle's been really, really a great place to work because they've given me a lot of freedom to to do what I thought needed to be done. And, and I one of the best pieces I think I ever did was a huge series on oysters after Galveston Bay suffered a just tremendous oyster loss after Hurricane Ike. And uh, I was really happy with that, but there were parts of that I wish I had more time to spend, uh, you know, Oysters are, you know, not coastal-related, but a lot of terrestrial uh, wildlife, a lot of water issues. Uh, I wish I had time to get into uh, time and the resources to get into, but it's a uh, it's a labor-intensive job. I mean, and most newspapers and reporters will tell you that they've never worked a 40 hour week in their life they're mostly 70 to 80 hour weeks and you just you just do as much as you can and go on to the next thing i guess
0: so you know i work professionally in fisheries as well and i, and I really relate to your point there in that the mere complexity of a lot of these issues makes it so difficult to uh to talk to somebody who doesn't deal with it every day and, and make it relate to their life because it is so important um, oysters obviously being a great example um, I, I'd be interested to hear about how you've approached some telling an ed, your audience, educating your audience on some of these complex issues where there are natural causes for change like the hurricane that you referenced. Uh, there are very much man-made causes. Um, uh, there is a growing population. There's water quality issues. There's this confluence of things that are impacting our environment. And everybody comes to it with a different lens of what they're willing to believe is a cause of a problem, uh, of a shift in a natural resource, and how you kind of tackle that and and speak to people in a general way that gets past what the biases they might bring as they read your column
1: i depend very very heavily on science and i'm i'm really lucky that i have some really good relationships with some really great science-based folks who can give me information that's just just that it's unbiased here's what the here's what the science says if you just focus on that and just uh and and don't get into opinion or agendas or anything like that just as here's what the science says or here's what's happening and and here's you know either anecdotal but empirical proof is by far the best everybody's got anecdotes but if you can talk to somebody and say Look, we've watched we watched southern flounder populations' abundance drop by seventy percent over the past thirty years, and and here's what's causing it. Here's why we believe that. You know, you'll. I think people will, no matter what their agenda or bias or what preconceived notions they come to a story with, you know, they'll they'll be able to gain some value from that and. So that's, that's basically the way I p- approach those.
0: I'm really glad you brought up the flounder example because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today was a piece that you wrote about um, subtle shifts in temperature on the Texas coastline and, and rising waters. Um, and you did a great job of, uh, of digging into the facts um, and the science behind that. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that case in particular where we're seeing a shifting environment and how that's impacting two species that you talked about in the article of of uh, mangrove snapper and, and and flounder
1: well those are just those are just two of the species that that's changed on the texas coast over the past you know 30 years or so uh you've got uh, i guess you have winners and losers when climate changes uh, and the Texas coast has obviously seen I mean empirical evidence of, of change over a long period of time or at least it l- accelerated over the past 30 years and uh, flounder are an interesting fish and this you know I'm not a fisheries biologist but I've talked to a lot of them and here's what they say southern flounder in Texas are we're at this we're at the, s- we're at the f- southern end of their range they're really a, really kind of a cold water fish uh, and a lot of their life cycle depends on is it just temperature dependent uh, particularly flounder uh, spawning flounder southern flounder live in the bays then move off adults move offshore during the fall. That's why we have a flounder run. That's why they're important to a lot of fishermen that fall flounder run is something everybody focuses on. But those fish are going into the gulf to spawn. They, they spawn in the open gulf. A key to spawning success is water temperature and they're a cool water dependent fish. The cooler the water uh, within a range the, the more successful spawn you're going to have you have hotter warmer temperatures the less successful you're going to have uh and it also they're one of the fish that the uh, temperature de- determines sex of the larva sex of that that fish so what's happened over the past 30 years is as texas winters have gotten warmer the our lows are higher so we've had really poor spawning success driven by, driven by water temperature, and uh, we've seen southern flounder populations drop by more than 70 percent from the early 70s to, the, to now, uh, 75 percent fewer flounder in our bays, uh, and that's just a direct result of the change in temperature. Uh, you can argue <laughs> you can argue what caused that temperature change but you can't argue that the temperature has changed and the effects have been you know very obvious with flounder and it's been the same with uh, you know that's a loser the uh, mangrove snapper that you mentioned have kind of been a winner uh, as temperatures warm they're a tropical fish they can't take all, you know water temperatures that under 50 or so for a long period of time they've moved up the coast we've got gray snapper uh, snook uh, you know we've had a lot of different different animals move in and out as dependent on the water temperature and and, i mean it's not just the gulf coast you see that on the atlantic coast you see it all over the world
0: the american shoreline podcast network and coastalnewstoday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in years of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella find them at lja.com be sure to subscribe to the coastal news today daily blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion want to support the discussion and promote your company we have sponsorship packages available now email me to learn more at chloe at that's chloe at coastalnewstoday.com hope to hear from you and enjoy the show with the mangrove snapper which is an interesting one is not only to the my understanding the warmer water has expanded their range and so we're seeing higher populations of them than we used to. Also shifts in salinity levels in the bays have begun to change saltwater marshes and we're beginning to create new habitat that is displacing one species and welcoming another uh, to your winners and loser comment.
1: And that's that's another point and I you know I mentioned this in the piece that you're talking about. It's kind of the change in the expansion of mangrove black mangrove into texas which is more is changing the estuaries is changing that estuarine environment that littoral environment on the estuaries and it's benefiting some and it's 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 hurting others uh but yeah and and that's all driven both by water level rise and uh and 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 temperature rise uh you've we've seen black mangrove which used to be pretty much relegated to the end of the state move all the way into Louisiana uh and displace oyster grass which is you know the the dominant coastal grass along the Texas coast which is and it's changing the it's It's changing the environment for both the fish, well, for everything there. Mm. And uh, I was talking to somebody the other day about how water change, water temperature change is changing benthic life, too, which is very poorly understood by a lot of people, including science. We don't know how that's changing marine worms and, and other benthic life, which is crucial. So we've got a huge gap in our knowledge
0: base there. R- remind our listeners what you mean by benthic life.
1: Benthics, uh, b- the critters that live in the mud, basically. That's the easiest way of putting it. Okay. Marine worms, mostly. Uh, uh, it's it's one or two steps up the food chain. Let's put it that way. I,
0: I wanted to push you to clarify that because it speaks to your broader theme is that all of these ecosystems are connected. And right. one change can lead to a cascading effect down the rest of the, the chain. Um, and so one of the things I wanted to, to get your perspective on, obviously with 40 years of experience in covering these issues, you have a lot of firsthand observations about these changes. Um, for me, summer flounder really hits a chord because I grew up in the, the Portland, Rockport area on the Texas coast. And um, I spent... Uh, All of those cold months gigging flounder uh, walking the beach with a Coleman lantern uh, dragging an inner tube behind me with a ice chest and gigging flounder and having a great time as a kid and um, I could barely do that now if I tried they're just not there and uh, and it it really it it's disturbing that we can see those sorts of drastic changes in our mere lifetime Uh, it really speaks to how things are changing um, so my my question for you is, what, moving beyond the changing environment and the actual species, what what's been your observation about how that's impacted the humans that interact with them, whether for recreation, for commercial harvest, how has that moved up into the into the human realm? You no, know,
1: that's a great question and it's hard to it be hard to point to one thing one thing i've seen change or or several things i've th- it's still it's frog in a still frog in a pot of boiling water you you don't notice it until you're cooked so it's hard to it's hard to definitively say but again I can say that it's 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 been very interesting to watch changes in the number of people on our bays and how people are how people approach their recreation uh, you know the conflicts that have arisen over sharing resources. Uh, it's uh, and and the the changes in relative abundance of a bunch of fish. It's just uh, uh, I don't know that I can.
0: <laughs> so change is the constant. Yeah,
1: change is the constant. Uh, you know I've. I, been lucky to sit in the same spot for 40 years uh on a bay shore and and i grew up in the galveston bay area uh but the couple places i've stood many 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 times over 45 going on 50 maybe even more than 50 years and to see the landscape change the edge of the bay changes the the you know, oyster reefs disappear. Uh, erosion change uh, salinity levels change. As as a uh, perfect example of this is when, when I was a kid, there used to be we used to have spring floods on the Trinity River at the mouth of the Trinity River, and we would go out and and uh, in the spring you could uh, you'd have huge flushes of crawfish. We would go crawfishing. We would pull my brothers and I would sand crawfish at the mouth of the river uh, Lake Livingston went in changed the hydrology of the river those those spring crawfish runs ended they just faded away but then you saw changes in the bay as salinity levels changed too you started seeing fish in places you didn't see them before uh, it, it just it's just interesting to watch the ripple effects of one change say one thing like putting in a river putting in a dam and to see how that changes things it may not be immediate but it'll change over the years and and you'll you'll have some perspective 20 years later you'll go well wow (laughs) this is very different than it was you know when i was younger
0: i i I would imagine that one of the things that have changed over the course of your lifetime and, and your professional career is we've also made some major changes on the regulatory front. We've had some yes. landmark environmental laws go on the books. And I'm curious what your perspective would be about things that you saw before and after. Are we doing better or are we doing worse about the same?
1: You're managing fish-wise? yeah you know, i think we're i think fisheries management has come a light years uh, ahead of what it was thirty forty years ago uh but you know and there's still work to to be done there but uh i think you've got so many conflicting interests now i think that's uh, I think that's playing a part, but I think well, your Fisheries management and regulations have have really come a long ways, and I think I think one of the big things about regulations is that when I started in this business, there were no limits for so many species, and I think that devalued those animals. If, if it was like the, where so many that you can just take as many as you want it sends a message a cultural message that these things aren't uh, you know a finite resource and I think conservative uh, you know clear-headed management based on science uh, has been the probably the biggest leap forward I've seen
0: So a large part of your audience that reads your column do so because they are hunters, they're fishermen. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I wonder, I mean, you've gotten to know that audience over your career. I wonder if you could speak to sort of their conservation ethos and how they view this natural resource.
1: It's really, really changed over the past 30 or 40 years. You still, um, you have a lot deeper conservation ethic in 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 the majority of people I and mean, you're always going to have some people who don't don't get the word but i think people are realizes these are finite resources and they're under stress from a lot of different factors and i think people want to do the right thing that's the that's probably the biggest change, uh, it's, uh, I think people really want to, to see their fisheries survive and not just survive, but thrive. And, and I think a lot of people want to do what they can to, you know, to help in that. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, I think it's been a real positive, real positive change in angler, particularly ethics on the coast, in especially. And I think that started in fresh water. I mean, obviously it did. It started in fresh water, but uh, but you're seeing that more and more. You didn't catch catch and release on the Texas coast, and uh, uh, people don't gauge their trips by how many ice chests worth of fish they bring in now. They gauge they gauge their their trips more on you know did i have a the whole experience uh you know did i you know did i did i did i I see some whooping cranes today you know that's that adds into the to the uh the value of a trip instead of just you know how many fish did i catch one
0: of the things that we've covered is sort of the The impacts of these sorts of decisions, which are complex, Um, and it seems that if you're going to limit harvest on a species in order to protect it and allow it to be sustainable, um, that's going to impact. That's going to cause something down the the cause and effect line. Um, Can you give us an example uh, over your career where you've observed where we've had to make tough decisions about managing a species or? part of the resource where the repercussions just didn't end up being palatable for people i can
1: give you an example i think it, it wasn't palatable for some people it was probably ended up being palatable for most people was the change uh, taking a speckled trout and redfish off the commercial list in texas in the late 70s early 80s, you know, ending commercial fishing for spotted sea trout and redfish in Texas took the livelihoods of a, you know, considerable number of people. Uh, I think that was one of those, one of those cost-benefit equations that the political and uh, social and cultural forces said it's going to happen but it certainly ended up you know certainly ended up impacting the commercial fisheries
0: that's a great example and, and it kind of speaks to um one of the tough complex decisions that have to be made in managing a resource and necessarily because you say okay commercial fishermen you can't catch this fish they're not just going to starve and they're not going to not feed their families. So they're going to figure out what they can catch. And so then there is a, you know, a boomerang effect where they begin to target some other species no. a- and, and you have too much of a take of that species and on down the line. And it, it it speaks to one of the things that's near and dear to my heart is that as we're going to manage our coastal communities and we're going to manage these fisheries, we have to do it in a way that works Economically for everybody. Um, otherwise, you disincentivize them to be good stewards, and I, I'm sure you've probably seen examples of that.
1: Oh sure, uh, oh yeah. I mean, well, you know, you just look at uh, you look at kind of the cascade effect of red snapper regulations in the Gulf. You know, when people couldn't focus on red snapper, they started focusing on great triggerfish, which and then <laughs> which no one ever did before that and and the next thing you know you got a problem with the great trigger fish
0: now we have trigger fish overfished right undergoing it,
1: overfishing it, exactly so uh yeah you just it, it's a constant balancing act i guess it's the same with oysters do you have you know oysters are vital crucial for bay health and and for fisheries health but you also got a a very viable business with oysters, mm. uh, you know. So, how do you balance that? And I think that's the that's the the issue that policymakers and biologists and individuals and, and we've all got to you we've know, all got to make those decisions and. Uh, uh, and try to have the best information we have to make those decisions. That's that's a key, I think.
0: So you've traveled up and down the, the coast extensively. You've seen everything there is to see. I, I'd be interested in hearing some some good news. What? Wh- where are some examples of where we're doing things right? Um, and everybody, including the different layers of the economy of a coastal community, is... Benefiting from where we're doing it right.
1: Hmm.
0: Boy, you know, come on, you got you got to give us some good news.
1: (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm just uh, I'm trying to think of some uh, the what would be the best example. What would what would you think would be a good example? Something.
0: I don't know. Uh. Well, I think in your backyard in Galveston, um, I mean, there's some environmental challenges, obviously, but uh, I think the community of Galveston has made is an incredible example of a comeback after a tough storm. Uh, they're getting tourism right. Um, they got hotel rooms full. Uh, there's lots of recreation, lots of opportunities, a, th- a thriving commercial fishery. Uh, and you're in the backyard of some of the best restaurants in the country. Um, that the community is doing something right. I can't put my finger exactly on it, but uh, but I bet you have some ideas. Yeah, you're right. I, I I think
1: I think people are finally seeing Galveston Bay as 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 a huge, not just a natural resource, but economic resource, and to keep it healthy. Is going to keep the the economy healthy, and it's such a part of the social fabric and cultural fabric of that area. And I think people really want to, they don't want to lose that. And uh, yeah, I think uh, I think people in Galveston Bay is a good example. It's really interesting to see what's happening down in Rockport and Fulton area that that area trying to recover from Hurricane Ike. I think people are really have really learned how valuable that those natural resources are to them, not just economically, but, geez, culturally and socially, uh, how, you know, a a healthy, uh, a a healthy base system benefits everybody. And, uh, you know, they don't want anybody, they don't want anybody taking that away from them. Mm -hmm. So,
0: so I'm curious about what you haven't written about yet. That's on <laughs> that's on that's on the horizon. I know you got a list somewhere of stories that are in the hopper. Um, thinking about the the column we referenced a second ago about the shifting environment um, with mangrove snapper and flounder. What's the what's the next story that readers are going to hear about that is going to surprise them?
1: I think you're just going to see continuation of of kind of how change is affecting, like not just the landscape, but the things that live on that landscape or in that water. I think we're going to see. Uh, I mean, we're looking at. We're looking at a Texas that's doubled in population in the last what thirty years. It's there, are f- four times as many people here as when I was born. Uh, there were 8 million people in Texas when I was born. Uh, I'm old, but I'm not that old. There are almost that many people in the Houston area, Houston metropolitan area. So I think you're going to see the big changes are going to be, you know, how do we balance the incredible growth that we're seeing on the Texas coast with quality of life. Not just for us, but for, well, for humans, but for the natural world, too. I think that's going to be the big, that's going to be the big issue. Uh, things like the ike Dike. what do you, you know, what are the effects of that? Are we going to see that? Uh, you know, the how's that going to affect us economically? How's it going to affect
0: the environment? How's it going to affect Galveston Bay? Uh, I
1: think those are the big
0: so real quick, for our listeners that are, are uh, across the country, tell them a little bit about the Ike dike and, and why that's uh, such a big deal
1: it's a um, you know Galveston Bay, after uh, hurricanes Ike and harvey uh, mostly Ike in two thousand eight uh, where we saw this incredible uh, storm surge that could have been much much worse uh but uh, we recognized just how vulnerable the Texas coast had become. The coast is not any more vulnerable. It's people on the coast who are much more vulnerable. Uh, the coast is very resilient. It's the human infrastructure that's not very resilient. And so there's a, uh, uh, you know, there's been an effort to try to develop a way to strengthen – It's called the coastal spine to try to build a series of levees and gates uh, to prevent uh, storm surge from damaging the incredible amount of industrial and residential and the development along the texas coast and it's we're talking you know uh Panama Canal type of, of infrastructure work I mean it's just, just biblical in scope uh, and it would affect the hydrology the, the, uh, of the Texas Bays of uh, Galveston Bay and uh, uh, you know this is one of these things are we uh, or, or how much are we going to spend to protect this infrastructure on the coast and what's the cost both Financially, ecologically, economically, socially, every way. It's just a huge a huge project aimed at trying to protect infrastructure on the Galveston
0: Bay. We were having a little conversation before we started recording about the, the unintended consequences of all the levees along the Mississippi River um, and how that changed the, the delta and has a lot to do with the land loss that we're seeing in Louisiana today. Uh, just a good reminder that these sorts of huge projects, uh, you know, have unintended consequences sometimes that span for generations. Um, uh, so I'm in that in that vein. I'm wondering if you could give an example of other major infrastructure projects that you've seen built along the Texas coast during the course of your career uh, that uh, maybe a few years later people said wow we didn't see that coming
1: <laughs> you know if you just drive like i grew up in the baytown area and if you just drive around uh, that area or or and i worked in the Beaumont, port arthur area it doesn't seem real smart to build huge refineries a couple of feet above <laughs> sea level on the edge of a bay uh you know yeah i think you know they never foresaw the consequences of that but you know we there are there are so many unintended consequences of some of the things we do the changes in uh uh fresh water inflows into this into the bays uh from you know damming our rivers and changing the hydrology there i don't think anybody saw those those changes uh could foresee those changes uh, but you know there's uh, I mean there have been some positive changes. I was just thinking of one the other day uh the we've talked about flounder populations dropping, but the green sea turtle population in the state of Texas has gone through the roof over the past ten years. Uh, and that's c- almost a direct result of regulatory changes in in the shrimping industry. Uh, you know, f- less loss of of, uh, of sea turtles through... Uh,
0: excluder yeah, devices. Excluder
1: devices. Uh, we're seeing sea turtles now, where we haven't seen them in 50, 60 years. So, you know, there are some... There's some positive things out there. There's some not so positive.
0: Sure. Well, we talked a lot about protecting these resources. Let's talk a little bit about enjoying them. Sure. Um, uh, you've covered a lot of fishing, and I'm sure you've caught a lot of fish in your life. Uh, what What's some of the most exciting fishing that you're seeing these days along the Texas coast?
1: You know, it's... it's uh, one of the things that's really been interesting the last few years is, is kind of this resurgence of the tarpon fishery on the Texas coast. Uh, I don't know if it's resurgent or if it's just been rediscovered. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have some some really, really good tarpon fishing for large fish in, in parts of our uh, parts of our coast, upper and the Middle Coast particularly, during the during the summer summer months. That's been a a real that's been a real bright spot. You know, we have a tremendous redfish fishery in, in, in this state. And uh, it's gotten to the point that I I would have never thought I would have heard this from readers or from, from folks I talk with who say we have too many redfish. And I'm saying, how can that be? I, I, I don't, how can you have too many? And, uh, uh,
0: well, I agree with that. I can never seem to catch my tagged redfish <laughs> and win my F-150 in my boat.
1: <laughs> well, it, 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 it is fascinating. I mean, I, I can't say that from when I was, you know, over the past 40 years, a redfish population in Texas Bays is just, it's just, you know just incredible we still have uh you know we we still have struggles sometimes with our with spotted sea trout and as we said flounder and some other things, and you know croaker uh which are not nearly as abundant as they used to, but I would say that you know we have just some great fisheries here, and how we've been able to keep them in the face of you know population growth and the number of people you know. Out there on the water. Uh, I mean, we're well over a million recreational fishermen in, in uh, coastal Texas now. And that's just uh, that's, that's a lot of people. Uh, so that, that's the tarpon and, the, and, and red drum are probably the biggest bright spots in the, on the Texas coast, I'd say.
0: It's funny you bring up tarpon. As I, as I said, I grew up in the Rockport, Portland, Corpus area um and there's just amazing photos in around port aransas in that area of fdr coming down uh and fishing in the area love love tarpon fishing the big tarpon rodeos yeah uh turned out to probably be a little bit (laughs) (laughs) short-sighted but still amazing parts of history and i'm also seeing a resurgence of tarpon on the coast and man on light tackle they're they're there's no more fun than getting a hold of big tarpon you
1: know and i think i think we might start seeing just from talking with the scientists i've talked with that we're seeing more and more small tarpon in some of our texas bays Uh, so there may be you know we may be starting to develop a uh, you know reproduction in some of our bays some of uh so we may see some smaller fish instead of just there's a lot of big fish out there uh, in the in the near shore gulf but we don't really have so many in our bays as as say places like florida or even farther south into mexico and places like that so i think that's really encouraging that, that we're seeing you know we're seeing signs that we may be building you know t- an inshore tarpon fishery too i mean it's nothing you know it's 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 not something you could depend on now but it's not it's not rare uh, it's, uh, it's kind of like you know, we were talking uh, about how things have changed with with water temperature changes and, and water levels. It's like manatees uh, you know there was no <laughs> there was no manatees up in here uh, until 15, 20 years ago and then you started seeing them. Uh, particularly down in the Mansfield area, there's one state in the in the harbor in Mansfield every year. There are now, you know, manatee reports in Lower Galveston Bay every year. Uh, we've had them all the way up the Houston Ship Channel into into Buffalo Bayou. We've had uh, you know we've had manatees uh, 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 almost in downtown Houston, uh, Trinity Bay. You you know we're 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 seeing we're seeing some. Some encouraging signs out there uh if those animals can uh, can survive, you know it's got to be a pretty it's got to be a pretty healthy system uh, so now i'm encouraged in a lot of ways and discouraged in a lot of other ways but that's I'm sure every generation says the same thing.
0: You were telling us a great story before we started recording about uh, one of your uh, influential professors in college and his advice on entering the field of wildlife and fisheries. (laughs) Will you share that with folks?
1: Yeah, it was kind of depressing. He was uh, was teaching us real-world stuff, and he said, you know, in your career, if you pursue this, you know, our goal, your goal should be to not lose any more than 15 to 20% of what you started out with. And that would be, you, sh- you should consider yourself successful then. And that just seemed like a, you know, like you were, your whole career you'd be fighting a rear guard action. And, and uh, you know, but instead of moving forward, instead of enhancing, you know, wildlife and fisheries, you were basically just trying to limit the damage. And I think, you know, I, I think a lot of folks still, <laughs> unfortunately, we st- we still have to have that attitude. Uh, it's, uh, uh, But it's, you know, I don't think you're going to have any real good successes if you go into it with the idea that you're already... You're going to lose to begin with. You should probably have a little bit more positive attitude. <laughs> Maybe gain 15 percent instead of lose 15 percent over your career. So, uh,
0: well, I think I, I think as we learned over the course of this conversation, that it's about it's about the averages, right? Right. I think there are places where we're doing really well, and there's some places where we've made mis- missteps.
1: Right. And uh, but on balance, I will say that you know uh, if you had asked me when I was 25. What it would be like in the year 2019. It is a heck of a lot better than I than I thought it would be. I will say that uh, it's uh, we've made some great strides and made some uh, uh, some really good decisions and really good improvements. And it's the fact that uh, we still have. We still have what we have where places like galveston bay next to this huge metropolis is still a viable mostly healthy productive estuary it says something either about us or about the strength of estuaries their resilience or maybe both uh i just hope in you know 25 or 30 years somebody else can say the same thing uh, but it's 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 been interesting it's been interesting covering this for the past 30 or 40 years and uh, uh, things have changed but I think mostly for the better to be honest with you
0: well that's great I love ending on a positive note um, and we can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us today and share your more than 40 years of experience Uh covering these issues living these issues um uh hopefully we can have you back sometime uh any any parting wisdom for our listeners
1: <laughs> no just uh, uh you know get out there uh, engage engage uh that coastal world uh Take every opportunity you can to be out there. Uh, It's it's we're really blessed with to have what we have. Uh, We have so many opportunities now to to access those and uh, you know pay attention to what's going on around you. Pay attention to uh, issues and you know make your make your feelings known to people who who can affect the policies that affect the things you care about and get out there and enjoy it, gum, you know it's
0: life's short Sage <laughs> Advice from Shannon Tompkins with the Houston Chronicle uh, we appreciate you joining us today for the Catch Curve podcast with the American Shoreline Podcast Network hope everyone has a good one